Hi everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about being invested in terms of the stock market, in your money, <laughs> in terms of learning, in terms of... Being invested in your life, Dad. In, in, yeah, being mindful. Being mindful about what is happening in your life and your plans and your future. And all of that is very difficult to do. And sobering up. And as sobering. To, as to what it's really going to take it. Yeah. It's uh, it's not the fun, the most fun thing to think about, that's for sure. It's, unless you have something good to look forward to. Like, people always say things like, oh, change is hard. But nobody ever says anything about change if it's something you wanted to have happen. People only talk about change if it's something that you didn't want to have happen. So... What we're talking about is hopefully the stuff you want to have happen. At least I hope that for me. And so what we were talking about last time was, uh, was the, just how scary it is to be sort of starting out on this, I don't know, this new educational journey of like this investing world and, uh, and not being confident in my own research. And thinking about putting real money in that you really don't want to lose. I think yeah. you said, you know, if I, if I lost half of my retirement, it would be this horrendous, terrible thing. And It would. Well, yeah. I mean, it, but first off, it's not like, you know, you're taking your children across the plains in 1848 and you get attacked by Comanches, you know. It's not on that level of awful. I probably wouldn't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> But I just want to keep it in perspective. I'm not Pa Ingalls. No, fair enough. Those guys were crazy. He was crazy. They were out of their freaking minds. Oh my gosh. I reread those books like a year ago because I just, I had the box set and I just thought to myself like, oh, I love those books. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's, it's the little house on the prairie. And I've always thought that this guy was an absolute lunatic. Well, I did not think that because I read them when I was like, you know, eight to 12 years old. So Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote, I think, seven or eight books about her family's journey basically from Wisconsin to where did they end up? Like somewhere in the Plains States. Yeah, they, well, they, they, they decided to move out of Wisconsin because I think a neighbor got within about 30 miles of them or yeah, something. Yeah, and Pa couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle the stress. <laughs> and so they moved out of this, you know, relatively safe environment onto the Plains when it was Indian country, the Sioux had just entered into a deal with the U.S. government to draw the line at the Mississippi. And that wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, the government wouldn't allow settlers to come over into their turf. And, you know, this had just been a deal. Yeah. And this guy just rolled right in there. Well, and so did a lot of other people. Basically, all the white people were like, screw you guys. We're just going to come anyway. Yeah. Well, they did, and there were not all that many of them because you'd have to be nuts to move out onto somebody else's turf when those guys happen to be armed to the teeth and a warrior ethic and you're out there yeah, with and we're your... totally your, defending their own territory. Yeah. And what do you have? You don't have a fort. You don't have neighbors. You don't have a tribe. You've got... Yourself, your wife, what, two daughters? Uh, I think they had two at that, yeah. And two. a dog. And That's a dog. what you got. Yeah. And you're going to go out there and defend yourself against people that are pretty good in the night. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, are you kidding me? Yeah. But you don't realize that when you read those books when you're little, because it just is like this exciting frontier story about Laura and like yeah. all the like adventures they have and 
Christmas on the frontier and not, like not making you're, like maple syrup out of the maple. Not realizing you're reading stuff. sort of the bad guy. So I read it over again and I was like, oh my god, these guys are these horrible. These people are horrible and like Paul was nuts and he almost starved his family like four different times and he almost drowned in the creek because he was an idiot. Oh yeah, and they've got the dog. If the dog died, they were done. Yeah, totally. I mean, because the dog would have set off an alarm that and there's people sneaking in. Basically, they lived because of pure luck. Luck and sort of the general, you know, view of the world of the Sioux, who were a little, you know, they're pretty much like live and let live to a certain degree. But that's pure luck, And that right? was pure like, luck. The Sioux had every right to just yeah. kill them. It's like, you know, we could walk in and just wipe this guy out. Yeah. But we're not Comanches. Right. If they were Comanches... There would not be any Little House on the Prairie books because the Comanches out in Texas, if you wobbled out into their turf like this guy did with the Sioux, they took you down and it was over. And then the craziest part is after like six books about them living on the frontier, they get to the long winter where they actually move to town because Ma insists that they move to town and they go and they live in like some little town, I think in South Dakota, and... It turns out that it's the worst winter South Dakota has had in 50 years. So they would have died on the prairie. Oh, they absolutely would have died. But the thing is, almost everybody in town almost dies because Jeez. they almost starve to death because the train can't get through. Jeez. So they have become dependent on the train. So it's like exactly what Pa has always feared, which is being dependent on somebody else. And then they are, and then the train can't get through, and they almost die anyway, even though they were in town. And they almost freeze to death, and it's a very long winter. Well, the, the point of this significant detour from our well, purpose here right, today but you know what? They're is such that good there's books. a certain thing called risk. I forgot that we were on a, a podcast we're, about Dusty. I thought we were on a book club podcast for no, a second. We're, we're talking about risk and, and kind of keeping it in mind, um, you know, that we're not talking about somebody taking you out and killing you or starving you to death. And it really is helpful, I think, to keep things in perspective. If our if our you know total asset pile goes down and up in this process, particularly mark to market, um, which is what we call uh, sort of the month to month accounting of how the market's doing with the things that we own, and it can be very up and down. Wait, does that mean? Just so I understand, so like you're not talking about actually selling your stocks, and this is your like actual losses. Losses. You're just saying like you are looking at the market and sort of in an imagination kind of way if you sold if you sold moment. this is where you would be okay. and that can be really emotionally distressing if you're stockpiling into a company and it's going down and you know you're seeing that day to day your your if I sold today price would be less than you bought it for and every day it's going down and this is an emotional trauma that is so hard to deal with it really is something I think we're going to have to spend more time on because it's it really um, says that you don't, if you're feeling that, then it's, you really don't know the value of the business that you own. Because if the value is going down, you've got plenty to be worried about. If the price is going down, you don't necessarily have anything to be worried about. It's as if you've got this lunatic neighbor on one, on the other side of the fence, uh, if you own a farm, who's, who owns his farm and he's shouting prices at you that he'll buy your farm for. And, you know, if he's pretty depressed that day, he's going to start throwing out really crappy low prices. And if you were to take those seriously as the real value of your business, you could be very depressing. 
But if you recognize that, you know, this is a this is a phase that this guy's going through and someday down the road, he's going to be extremely exuberant and irrationally so. And he's going to be shouting really stupid high prices to you. And, you know, and then by the same token, there's no reason to get really, you know, euphoric over it because you're not a seller. So it's really important to keep it, uh, your, your head on straight about what's going out in the market. And this is where, you know, we've talked over and over in the podcast about modern portfolio theory, efficient market hypothesis, the, the idea that market prices and market and the value of those things is the same thing. Well, we, we're strongly in disagreement with that, that the, that the market price can be vastly disconnected because of emotions and fear from the real long-term value of a business. And so if you believed that modern portfolio is true, modern portfolio theory is true, then of course you would be emotionally ruffled by all of this up and down pricing because it's apparently the up and down value. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's really important to understand that Buffett, Munger, and this whole school of investing just thinks that market day-to-day pricing is, as as Ben Graham said, it's just, you know, sort of the emotional scale of the market. It, it, it are sort of the emotions of the voting going on there. And in the long run, the market will properly weigh out the value of the business. But in the short run, it's just emotion. It's emotional noise. So it's very, very important we understand the value of a business, which is what we're going to talk about. Yeah, but let me just add on that. Before we get there, Before, for the fourth or fifth I know, time. Yes. I know. Okay. We're never, ever going to talk about Chipotle. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, no, let me just say quickly, though, on that. Like, yes, I agree with you that there are times when the price of a, of a company is different than its value. And yet there are also times when maybe the the information about the company has changed and that information is being uh, accounted for in a lower price or a higher price. Sure. And maybe also probably a lot of the time it's both, right? Like there's emotion stuff, there's information that hasn't been accounted for in the stock price, and then maybe there's some other information that has been accounted for. So I think you just have to like figure out... What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, we we talk about this in terms of a story. Yeah. So we're going to create a story about this company. Um, so let's create one now, and you know, just kind of give you an idea. So let's talk about a story about Chipotle Mexican Grill. Okay. So the first part of this story is I, I really like to know if somebody is out there buying this company that's a really smart investor. So I, we call this the radar part of the story. Like, how did? How did I come to hear about this stock investment? And that idea of radar it comes directly from Warren Buffett and, and, and uh, Charlie Munger, who basically are saying that really the best way to begin to be an investor, the best way to get rolling is the way they got rolling, which is to copy somebody else who's really good at what they're doing. So if you can find somebody that you know that is awesome at investing, then it would make a lot of sense to just kind of pay attention to what they were doing as a way of copying them. And and so it's almost as if you could get a phone call from a guy as smart as Warren Buffett and once every three months he'd call you up personally and say, hey, uh, Danielle, I'm buying this and I'm selling that. Yeah, and I'd be like, why? Why are you calling me? No. <laughs> well, I know why he's calling me. Come on, I'm fascinating to talk to you on the telephone. Exactly. He, no, I'd say, why are you buying that or selling that? And so what you just did is you typed in to the internet, the interwebs, 
dataroma.com. I did. D-A-T-A-R-O-M-A dot com. Dataroma is a free site, D-A-T-A-R-O-M-A, and it'll be in the show notes. It's a free site that tracks what a a lot of value type investors are buying. So there's all of these thousands of people who buy, who have over $100 million that they're investing. These are called institutional investors. And they're required by law to post on the SEC website what they're buying, what they're selling once a quarter. Okay. And so this website, Dataroma, um, extracts that information from the SEC, which you'd think you'd be able to do on your own if, by the way, if you're thinking that healthcare run by the government is a good idea. Just go to the SEC website and try to find information. All right. Uh, come on. The SEC's website is not that hard. Oh, really? No, it's not that hard. Okay. Think about it for a second. How you, go would you... To, you go to the, you Google SEC Edgar. Yeah. You'll get the Edgar website. You put in the stock symbol. We have to pay for you... the Edgar website, don't you? Okay, well, you do on a deeper level. All right, keep going. It gives you all the different reportings from whatever company that you typed in. Yeah. And you you can search it. You can find the 10Ks and the 10Qs. I mean, I've done lots of research for my practice. Well, I'm very impressed that you can go in there and do that. Actually, because I can't. I don't find it easy at all. And I am very happy to pay somebody to pull the data and put it in a form that I can actually understand. So, for example, if you go on the website and look for 13F filings on the sec.gov website, um, I think you will come to agree with me that this is an absolute mess. I admit that their search function is not the easiest. Yeah. Let's say it's not Google level. <laughs> let's <quality>. say. <laughs> let's stipulate. We don't even have to stipulate. We so can just agree on look that. It, let, me, let me just put it like this. Don't bother to try to pull this data from the F- SEC. But it's I do want everyone mess. to know that this is public record. It's not some special information that you have to pay for. This is something that the SEC has required so that we all know about it equally and we all have access to the same information on the right. SEC's website. Right. And you can imagine how much these institutional investors hate putting this up there because it it really tells the world what they're doing yeah. in the long run. Yeah. So they have to do that. it, but we don't care about that. Too bad, guys. So what I've done is I've gone in here and I put in Chipotle Mexican Grill, CMG, um, or you can just type in Chipotle. Uh, yeah, on Dataroma. On Dataroma, and where it says stock symbol or name. You type in Chipotle and it'll, it'll show you where to, where to go. And what it does is it tells you when you put in CMG, which I'm doing right now, it comes up and it says ownership count, and it says one. Um, there's one owner in this database of maybe 100 fund managers who are carefully selected for their value stock orientation. Oh, these are specifically selected because they have a value investing style? Strategy, yes. Okay. strategy. Yeah. So that's really important because there's thousands of these investors out there, and, you, and most of them are not investing the way we do. In fact, most of this, say, 100 group here don't invest the way we do either. Okay. Um, and the way you can tell is that if you go in there um, and find somebody, in this case it says ownership count one, and you scroll down and it says, okay, Lee Ainsley of Maverick Capital is the one guy who is owning shares of Chipotle, and he owns 390 shares, which is like nothing. Okay, so Lee Ainsley of Maverick Capital. Well, let's go over there and find out what's going on with Lee. So you can click on his name. Clicking on his name, and it says that he has $5.8 billion under management. Okay, so $5.8 billion. 
as of September 30th. So that's the last time you reported. So a new reporting date's coming up because we're now in February. So this will be updated within days now, I imagine. And now it also says the number of stocks he has. It has 116 stocks. Okay, so now what I'm going to do is, is suggest that it's not the total number of stocks somebody has, although when you get up around 100, you're way out of the range of what we do, right? Because that's about, if you did it evenly, that'd be about 1% of your portfolio on each stock, which means you're not very focused. Warren Buffett, for example, has over 100 stocks, but he's got 65% of his money in four or five of them. Oh, really? So much, he just owns a tiny bit of a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, because he's got a couple guys that we call the Todds, who, <laughs> <laughs> who he brought in um, to um, replace him as an investment manager if he ever steps down. And they each have like $10 billion to work with out of a $120 billion portfolio. And so they're buying, and their strategy is different than Warren's a little bit. They buy more stocks. He has guys coming in to replace him who have a different strategy than him? Well, the same view in terms of value um, and price, but they're buying more stocks and they're trading more than he does. That's weird. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, hmm. why he would do that. So, he um, strikes me as, a, as an odd fish. Warren? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, he kind of wants to be famous, I think. Well, I think he did He's it. He's in movies lately. <laughs> I, think, I think he made it. Yeah, he's been successful. If that's what he wanted, he got it. Yeah, but I mean, like some people want to hide away and not 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 be in the Entourage movie. No, but he wanted to be in the Entourage movie. I don't know. I just I just find it a little interesting. I and like now it. He's bringing in the Todds. I like it. I'm really glad the guy does what he does. I think he's fabulous. I really do. I think we need somebody like Warren Buffett in the world, and he's he he plays his role very well as a as a really grandfatherly, full of heart, genius, brilliant investor, trying to help people figure it out, um, how you go about doing this kind of stuff. And honest to God, I owe him a lot. I mean, he, I, we couldn't be doing what we're doing without I, Warren Buffett. I completely agree. And, and, he, and he's been outspoken about it. He's been upfront about it. He's been teaching this for 50 years. And if he hadn't, and Charlie, if he hadn't, um, you know, we, we just wouldn't have a clue. And we would be basically thrown back on what the rest of the world does, which is modern portfolio theory. And yet Charlie is not in the Entourage movie. Just, as a, just as a slight interesting dichotomy between two different kinds yeah, of Yeah, I don't people. think Charlie has ever felt much like he need, wants to be no, out front no. on this stuff. That, that's my, that's all. And he's pretty dry. Charlie's got a pretty dry humor, you know. Yeah, I you know, kinda, like I saying, like saying pithy little things like, you know, if all of these institutional fund managers weren't so stupid, we wouldn't be so rich. Right. That's sort of sort of Donald Trumpian. No, in a he way. could care less. Yeah, yeah. could care less. Exactly. <laughs> kind of fun. So okay. we got we to gotta take a look at Lee Ainsley here real quick and see if he's enough like us that we could pay any attention to what he owns. And so um, what we see is that the portfolio that he has when we click on him, it shows his portfolio. Um, is listed according to the percentage of the portfolio in the stocks. And so the most percentage is in Liberty Global, which he's got 8.5% in, and then 8% in RMAC, RMARC rather, and then about almost 8% in, in Alphabet or Google, and so on down through the list. So if we, if we, we scroll way down here, we might eventually find Chipotle Mexican Grill. I don't even know where it is on this list. It's way down there. And uh, actually, he, I don't think it's even on that list because he only owned like, three, like 380 shares, shares or something. And, and it doesn't even count as a zero. So the you lowest can see number is two 
2,400. And, and look, at, look at how how few shares he owns of so many of these companies. I mean, it's almost nothing. So really, Lee is kind of like us. When you get right up here into the big part of his portfolio, he's got millions of shares in companies. And then you get down to all these companies where he's just sort of got a toe in the water um, or it's a leftover vestige of some previous investment. And somewhere in that low end, almost nothing, he's got companies like Lululemon, Chipotle Mexican oh, Grill, American is. Express, you know. And so he put a toe in the water. He has seven hundred and twenty thousand or seven hundred twenty dollars is where he was buying it, and he's stopped buying it. It's going down like a brick. So point being, there's basically nobody who invests similar to me who owns Chipotle Mexican Grill right now, which is a big red flag. So I, I'm going to make a note of that. Okay, so you that's the that first thing. You take that as a big red flag. Yeah, big red flag. I mean, I don't want to put myself forward and, as a genius to, here. To note, I mean, we don't have the most recent quarterly information yet. Right, so they may so have So they may have the bought drop. something between the end of September and the end of the year. Right, so, you know, this month of January when Chipotle dropped because of E. coli, he might have been buying like crazy. Now it's ten percent of his portfolio. Yeah, and we just we won't know that for months. Exactly. Well, we won't know it for a couple, maybe another week or two weeks. But he's going no, to we report. Won't get, we won't get January information. Until oh, that's true. The first quarter. That's true. We're going to get report. it through December. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a limit to you know the usefulness of this, but it's I think extremely useful to know if somebody's in there and likes that company. So the first thing we we get from the radar view of this is that. You know, how did this, how do we decide we we're interested in this? And it's not because of some guru buying it. It's because we actually go and eat their food yeah. and like their company. Yeah. Okay. So that's all right. Now let's dive in. Just because some guru is buying it doesn't mean we shouldn't buy it. It just means we should be aware that other really smart value oriented investors are not buying this right now, or at least up, up okay. until process per question. Hmm. Here's okay. Company X. You think to yourself, for whatever reason, I'm going to just check this one out. You go to dataroma.com and you see that only one investor buys 390 shares of it. Yeah. Do you just stop there because your time is valuable and you want to check out other companies? Not at or all. Or do you keep going? You, you definitely keep going. Um, there are going to be a number of companies that uh, we can buy as small investors that isn't going to, they're not going to interest anybody with $5 billion oh. because they don't. They would have to buy the whole company to get enough of a percentage okay. that if the company doubles in the next three years, it would make any impact on their portfolio at all. Because they're deploying so much more money. So much more money, okay. right. So, I mean, think if you bought 10 stocks with $5.8 you'd have $580 million in each stock. There's a lot of stocks we could buy that don't have a market cap of $580 million. Okay, got it. Okay. So, this is not going to stop us. It's just going to kind of be a highlight. And Chipotle, by the way, is not one of those little tiny companies. So this one is one that the big guys could be buying, but they're not. Okay. And it's, I already know enough about the company to say pretty comfortably that it's, I think it's a good company, right? I already, I like what they produce and nobody else does it as good as they do. So I already think it's a pretty good company. So this is a pretty red flag. Why wouldn't they be buying this? And the answer to that question is, if I'm right, that it's a really wonderful business, then the reason they wouldn't be buying it is the other reason, which is... It's overpriced. It's overpriced. Right, value investors want to buy things on sale by definition. So that would be the other reason. So either this is not a wonderful company or it's overpriced. Is probably right away we can see that just from looking at data Roma. 
Wait, what price did this guy buy it at? Can we go down? Seven hundred and twenty dollars. And now it's at four hundred. Yeah. And whatever. So he, he stuck his toe in the water at seven twenty, thinking maybe I like it at seven twenty. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens when the fourth quarter reports come out for 2015. See if these value guys were jumping in there. Yeah, because it was going down, but I don't think it really dropped until January, let's, right? Yeah, let's take a look here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to a charting program on my brokerage site, um, and you can do this on any brokerage site, and many of them you can sign up for with no money in your account, actually, and then you can get access to their tools. So I'm going on this one, and I'd tell you which one it is, but I'm changing them, and I, I want to give you a good one here. So um, let's see what we got. This is the last few months. And um, oh, yeah, it did drop in December. Totally dropped like a brick. So it was all the way down to, you know, yeah. $500 by, by January. And then it went to $400 early January. So they may have been buying, they may have been waiting to see where the bottom is. Yeah, that'll be interesting. We should check that out. But um, all of that, by the way, is sort of <clears throat> icing on the cake. So we have to go do the cake. You know, what's the cake? And the cake here is, first off, is this a wonderful business? And second, what is the value of the business? And the, 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 we've talked about this before, but you really can't figure out what the value of a business is unless it's a wonderful business. Because by definition, wonderful businesses will have the consistency and predictability for the future um, that would allow you to, to, to roughly figure out what the overall cash flow is going to be from it. And from that, we can figure out what to pay for it. So a business that does not have consistent numbers, is this what you're saying? Well, that will have consistent numbers in the future. It's we, if looking out the back window of the car at the historical numbers was enough for us to make really good money investing, then as Warren Buffett said, all librarians would be rich. <laughs> in other words, just reading about it isn't going to do it, uh, and about the numbers isn't going to do it. So while we would like it to have really great historical, predictable, consistent numbers, that doesn't exclude it from the future having okay. those things. So it makes it harder a company to that out. is not wonderful is not one that we can value? Is that what you just said? That's what I would say, yeah. So by definition, why not? Because number one thing about wonderfulness is what Charlie said is the first thing we have to do, which is be capable of understanding the business. Mm -hmm. If I'm not capable of understanding it, it is by definition for me, not wonderful. Well, and definitely not something I can value. And definitely not something you can value. So as soon as it gets goes too hard, then it goes in a too hard box. Okay. And for that reason, it's not, it might be a wonderful business for somebody else, but not for me. By the way, you said something that I thought was interesting about companies that go in your in the too difficult box, which is you can come back to them later. Sure. Um, as I, your as your as I your had not really thought of. I just thought that was a good point. Like I think of it as like, oh, it's gone, and that time is wasted, and I'll never get it back. But really, if you're thinking about this as hopefully a lifelong practice of investing, constantly being a student, constantly learning. You can hopefully use that information down the line. I, I'm almost positive that this would be the one endeavor. Well, I'm sure there's more actually. But this, this hobby, if you will, if this focus of part of your time is the knowledge is cumulative. And I would say almost all of it is cumulative. You almost can't waste time because... Even if you're studying something you don't understand, that's knowledge that you don't understand it. 
That's true. That's that's awareness. That's awareness. That and they don't understand. And it. the next thing that comes rolling in that looks something like that, you don't have to spend any time on it. So that's a benefit to you. It just goes in the too hard box. And then as your knowledge increases, like you want to start really narrow and really focused, as we were talking about at the end of last podcast, and and stay away from what we don't know. Um, and focus maybe immediately on what you're already a customer for, what you're already spending money in, what's already a passion of yours. You know, what are you doing in your life all day long? And it's almost impossible for you to be functioning in this modern world and not be buying stuff from public companies that you could explore. Hmm. So you've chosen to buy that product for a reason. You've been discriminating. You've been deciding. And if there's no reason why you're buying Tide over whatever some other soap is, um, then you know that. <laughs> I don't care. Just give me some soapy thing, right? Or if you, you drive into a gas station and they don't even bother to look at what's on the sign. It's just, what's the price? That's very important to know. Why is that very important to know? Because now you realize that there's no moat for those gas stations. Oh. There's nothing that distinguishes you're one right. from the other except price. You're right. So now you know, hey, uh, you know, they, they talk like you got a tiger in your tank and nobody cares. You just they go, talk like you've got a tiger. You know, so it's just <laughs> the, the gas stations used to be like when I was a kid, I worked in a gas station. Right. I mean, when I was when I was 17, I was working and with the starched white uniform, I mean, starched creased pants okay. that you'd go into work and they would have it all starched for you and wrapped up. And then you have to shove your arm into the arm sleeve because the shirt was just a rock Whoa. of starch. And then you and you wear a little uh, hat, you know, a little hat. And then you come out in the the, del, the the bell dings as the car comes across the the uh, cord at, and at the gas pumps. And you run out. You run out. Run. You run out. Go to the door. How can I help you, sir? Uh, can I fill it up? And you got a big smile on your face, and the guy says, sure, fill it up. And he's got a big smile on his face. It looks like some ad from 1950. That sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. I want to go to that gas station. I know. And then you I hate up. doing my own gas. Oh, man. And so then you put the gas in, and then you run back around, and you say, sir, can I check your oil? And I says, of course you can. And he pops the hood. Just pop the hood for me. Oh, I don't know where the hood latch is. Hey, no problem. I know this car. Pops the hood. Run around there. Pop it open. And you take a certain pride in knowing where to find the latch under the hood. You know, right away. You don't have to dig around for it. And you open up the hood and you check the oil. And you got to be careful not to burn yourself. So you check the oil and you come back. And you say, see that? It's dirty. It's like black. And you know what? We can get your oil changed here for you in 15 minutes. Have you back on the road. Want to take care of that? It's going to just be about this many quarts and blah. We get it done, put in a new oil filter, and you'll be all set. The guy goes, no, but I could come back in a week. Okay, fine, man. Now, let me check your air filter while we're at it. Check the air filter. Sure, this is dusty. Sure, can I blow this I out for like you? I feel you're going back in time right now. I'm 19, having this whole experience. 1959. Yeah, and we're probably wasting everybody's time totally. What's this got to do with investing? <laughs> what it has to do with investing is back then, Chevron was competing on brand. Hmm. Right? Because they know the gasoline's the same. So here's my question. How much more did their gasoline cost to pay for you to do all that stuff than someplace that didn't have you? Well, nobody knew that you could compete in gasoline on price back then. So everybody was doing this, hmm. right? So the, the Texaco guys were doing it. Everybody was doing it because that's the way it had always been. You delivered service, right? You were a store. And and gradually in, in the you know 19, late 1960s, um, as oil prices 
um, started getting really volatile, some low-cost gas companies came into being. And they just started putting up the price, and they didn't provide any – you had to pump your own gas. And people, you know, Standard Oil was like, there's no way you'll survive. You know, people don't know how to pump their own gas. They're not going to pump their own gas. Turned out they would. <laughs> and they basically put that brand thing out of business. Hmm. And now nobody cares. And so nobody does all this. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that you, you, you just the daily things that you do in your life can tell you an awful lot once you've learned a little bit about what you're looking for when you're, when you're doing those daily kinds of things. Why am I buying Crest and not Colgate? You know, what's the difference really? And so if you start to find things that have a vast difference, that you have a preference, that you're no way changing, right? You're going to McDonald's, not to Burger King. There's just a thing. Like you're buying Cokes, not Pepsi. I mean, you, you, that is a moat. So you start to recognize why I'm doing these certain things with my money and you start to realize I'm already a customer for very specific reasons and that's something you should dive into as a potential investment. So somebody, that's Somebody deal. should start a really fancy gas station with guys in starched white outfits and little hats. And see if anyone comes and, see, and pays more. Well, I'd be curious what they would have to charge on their gas in order to pay for that. But if it wouldn't, if it wasn't crazy, I would totally pay for that because I hate doing gas. I'm thinking somebody just might do that, you know, just because of what you're saying. But let's move on because I, I do want to get into this a little bit and then we can continue okay. it next I time. I like to just complain about consumer services. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Now that I've sort of identified, let's say, Chipotle is someplace where I go and eat burritos yeah. and I love their burritos and nobody else has burritos as good as Chipotle burritos. Nobody. Nobody. And like their service is awesome and their place is clean and it's all good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So now I want to know, is this a wonderful business? Because I feel I'm capable of understanding the business. So I'm going to go over to, um, in this case, I'm going to go over to my own website and look up some of the scores that it gets on seven very specific numbers, seven numbers. Four of them are about the moat and three of them are about the management team. So I'm going to... You can have numbers about people? Yeah, because the management team should be able to deliver a pretty consistent result. And if they do, oh, okay. then the number will look good. So it's about the numbers they're delivering. Right. So let's start there. The management team for Chipotle has three numbers that I'm following that are pretty key. One is called return on equity. One is called return on invested capital. And one is called debt. Okay. So Chipotle has zero debt. So that gets a 100% score. Yeah. That's phenomenal. We love companies with That's no debt. That's pretty rare, right? To have yeah, no it debt is kind of rare. In a public company. Yep. Because they often leverage up to improve these numbers. Mm -hmm. So we're going to love Chipotle for that. Second thing is ROIC, if there's no debt, return, is the same exact thing. Return on investment, invest, invested or investment, invested capital. Invested capital. Is the same thing as return on equity, if there's no debt. Oh, okay. So return on equity is just the earnings divided by the equity of the company. And the return on invested capital is the earnings divided by the equity of the company plus the, the money you borrowed. Okay. So you can see like there's zero debt there and the return on invested capital is exactly the same as return on equity. Okay. All right. Yes. Then the next thing we want to look at is over a 10 or 11 year period, we use 11 years and then do 10 periods, is, is return on equity going up or going down? And what we see here is that over a 10-year period, return on equity is 
17% on a 10-year average. But over a three-year average, which is closer to today, it's 22%. So return on equity is actually improving over time. Okay, cool. Which is awesome. Is 22% like a good, like I have no idea. Is it a good number? Is it a bad number? Is it a medium? Well, we put it like this. We'll give it a thumbs up score if it's above 10%. Okay. And it's really great when it's above 15. Oh, and they've been above 15. Forever. Forever. Yeah. And so this is a really good score. What it so means this is starting is, to point to why their price has been so high. Exactly. It's okay. a really well-run company. Now, by the way, um, what we should say what is return on equity. Return on equity is the, re, the interest rate you're getting on your money. So if you put your money in a bank and they pay you a quarter percent a year, that's your return on equity. The, the equity is the amount you put in, $100, and the return on it is that you got, you know, 10 cents and a 1% return or whatever that is. Okay, so this company, this is why this number is so impressive, um, is return on equity here is 22% per year got average. It. Got it, got it, got it. So while your money's in the bank at quarter of a percent, Chipotle is taking that same money and made $22 on a $100 deal in a year. Yeah, that's okay. It's humongous. <laughs> it's really good. Now, okay, so you've got these numbers on your on rule1investing.com, um, very nicely laid out. How could I find, like, are these numbers that go out in the financial statements? Yeah. Well, no, return on equity isn't in the financial statements, so you have to calculate that you one to, yourself. So the only way I would be able to find that out is to calculate it yeah. from their financial yeah, statements. Yeah, you get the earnings divided by their equity, and you have return on equity, and then you do it for every year, and then you average them which is why we like to compile all this. It's just okay. quicker. But you can get this information on a lot of different websites. Morningstar has it. Guru Focus has it. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of places that compile this kind of data. So it's very, very easy to get. And return Even, on equity and return on invested capital are very common numbers. Very common numbers. Okay. You can I go just to want almost, people to, to know that they can, you can find it other places. You can go to your broker. To. Like If you go over to TD Ameritrade and you know look up a company, it'll there'll be a, a menu item that says here's where you can find the financials. Okay. Okay. And it'll show you historical financials. So okay. this is not secret stuff. Good. Okay. Um, okay. So that's a huge thing Chipotle's got. And then the so those are the first three numbers, and we all we know every one of them is a 100 because that's like the score that your the website best score has given get. to it. Yep. That's the website we've given to it. And then the four numbers that we look at for moat. So we know management gets a big score. Moat numbers are all growth rates. Okay. And we've talked about these in the early days. We talked about book value per share plus dividends. What's the growth of that? Um, what's the growth of earnings? What's the growth of operating cash? What's the growth of sales? And so we take those numbers, the growth rates, and then look at those over time. And what we see when we look at Chipotle here is that they have phenomenal growth rates that are staying really high over a long period of time. Over a 10-year average, the lowest one is sales growth rate, which is... 22%. And it's managing to stay that way or better over seven years, five years, three years, last year. It's just continuing this huge, uh, wonderful rate of growth. Now, growth is slowing down a little bit because they bumped into stuff in 2015, right? But in general, this company's got an enormous growth rate. So those are, those, we're going to dig into more of this next time. Mm -hmm. But just to give you an idea really quickly of where we're going, 
those growth rates are what I'm going to use now if I don't know anything else about the company. I'm not looking out the front window of the car yet. I'm looking out the back window at the road and I'm saying, okay, what's the speed limit here? And the speed limit here is, you know, what's the worst one up there? The worst number in that whole pile of numbers is like 19%. Okay. okay. So I'm going to say, you know, this is probably a company where I could see historically the growth has been about 20% or better of, uh, of earnings. And I am going to use that in figuring out quickly whether this company is kind of on sale or not. So I see a lot of consistency there. And I see that I'm, I've got numbers that range all the way to 50% on that pile. And we're going to get into this more with detail. I just want to show you really quickly what, what I'm going to do with that. Well, let's let's do that next time, because I think that's uh, like figuring out the value to me is a very big subject. So you want me to just stop right there? Yeah, let's stop there. Okay. And let's, let's move on to that next time, because I don't want to do it quickly, because it's just frankly, I'm just going to get confused. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I do want to say about what you just said again. You said it all really quickly. So all right, let's take you it said, back again. You said something about how all these numbers are really good because they're all above twenty percent. There's one that I see, and again, I'm looking on the Rule One Toolbox numbers here. So this is something you have to, um, you know, sign up for, and I think you probably have to pay for it. But I don't know. Do you have to pay for it? Um, you wouldn't get you on there for free for a little while. Okay. So anyway. Um, there's an 18.7% under three years, and it's on the, what line is that? The operating cash flow growth. Right, right. Um, so for some reason, you said that was the number you were going to go with. Yeah. Is that just, because you're being conservative? Well, I, I got to tell you, let's, let's dive into that next time. Okay. Because really, there is a, there's a big barrel to open up right there. Yeah, that's kind so of we need I to figured. kind of dive into that. <laughs> okay. But let's just say that, you know, you, you, you can't pick a growth rate for a company by looking out the back window of the car. And that's what I was doing. Okay. You can't do that. And what I was going to do is just do You're a saying quick looking windage. at past performance does not predict future performance? Exactly. Looking at the past road doesn't say that there's not a big curve <laughs> coming at you. Yep. Right. Yeah. So you can't do that. What I was just about to do to get at at a value. So it's probably good we're stopping me right here, and I'll I'll dive into this next time about how you would take the historical numbers and come up with something to work with, because what we don't want to do is spend a lot of time digging into companies that are just never going to be on sale, right? Oh. And Chipotle is a great example of that because it just isn't going to be on sale. What do you? But we don't. It might be on sale right now. You don't know that. Well, let's I, I take know, a quick look. I'm going to take a really, quick look. But we did this already, like what, like a month ago or something, where we looked at the numbers and you said, oh, it's it's still not on sale. Um, and you thought, I think it was worth maybe 250 or something like that. Well, if we were to take a 20% growth rate and just plug it in and say, you know, let's just run our standard calculation, which we haven't talked much about, it would tell us the company's worth about 700 bucks a share. If it can grow forever at 20% a year, which okay. it cannot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that because you said that McDonald's has, I don't know, X number has, let's say, a thousand stores, which is not right, obviously, but let's say they have a thousand. You said Chipotle, I think, has like 200. Yeah, McDonald's has like 40,000. Chipotle is like never going to be McDonald's. So, yeah. The ratio of a thousand to two hundred means that Chipotle is probably already. So in the real world, it can't grow quite this fast. But let's let's just just for the fun of it, let's say what are the what are the analysts saying? And here's where it gets crazy and makes me nuts: is the analysts, the professionals, 
are saying it's going to grow at 21% for the next five years. Okay. Okay. And they might be right, but that doesn't mean we should buy it with a long-term view that it's 21% per year for the next five years. If they're right, if they're right, and, and let's just say that's what Mr. Market is using as an indication of what this is worth, then Mr. Market would say it's worth about $1,100 a share if they're right, if it can keep growing like this, in which case it's on sale right now, big time, and you should run out and buy it. But we're going to dive into that a little bit and understand that you cannot just do that. You will get burned by Mr. Market. Yeah, you've gone way too fast for me. Okay, so let's wrap it up. We're going to come back to this next week. I feel like Chipotle is the company we will never get away from. It's okay. I just keep hoping In it goes 20 down. 20 years, we'll be talking about Chipotle. If we keep talking about it long enough, it might go to 200, <laughs> but probably not. So let's, uh, let's come back on this, and we're going to dive in next week in detail. Get ready to take I notes. I promise not to talk about Little House on the Prairie. Yep, we for won't five waste minutes. any more time about this. But We're come on, that right was fascinating. It. Everybody should go read Little House on the yeah. Prairie. And and there's a point there too. And that is keep in mind that risking our capital in the stock market is number one, not as dangerous as it probably looks, and number two is less dangerous if you know what you're doing. And number three, if you take some losses here and there, chances are you can make it up if you're doing it right. I will so. take your point that it is less dangerous than death. <laughs> that is a true fact. Oh, my gosh. We're going to have to go back and talk about the Patel family some more. <laughs> All right. So until next time, it's time to go play. All right. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code stockpile, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, stockpile, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.